All right, folks. Uh, welcome today to the Kashmir Palestine conversation series that will take up the issue of popular resistance. Today's uh, conversation, uh, which will include uh, Drs. Insha Malik and Dr. Ala El Azza, uh, and moderated by Verinder Kalra, is to today's event. So we're very excited to have our guests in audience today, and, and uh, this session will be recorded. Um, I'm, I'm, my name is Dr. Tofik Haddad. I'm the director of the Council for British Research in the Levant's Jerusalem offices, known as the Kenyan Institute. And I'm one of the founders of the Kashmir Palestine Scholars Solidarity Network. I'm going to pass over to my colleague, Dr. Emma Brandlund, who is also one of the founders of the the uh, network, and she will do some introductions and go over how things will run today, and we'll get started soon. Go ahead, Emma. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome, everyone. So you're all very welcome to our third Kashmir-Palestine conversation that is organized by the Kashmir-Palestine Scholarly Network. And uh, this, first of all, yeah, this network is funded by the British Academy, and um, and as part of this, one, one of our activities is organizing this uh, conversation throughout uh, autumn, winter, spring, 2022-2023. And so today's session is uh, focusing on popular resistance, and we're delighted to have two eminent speakers and an eminent chair um, at this afternoon event. So I will start with uh, introducing our chair, uh, Professor Virinder Kalra, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Warwick. And he's, his work is uh, on the British Asian diaspora, as well as popular religion in, in the Punjab and across the Indo-Pakistani border. Uh, he is currently working on molecular diaspora literature, looking at the writings of migrants in the UK in the Punjab. Um, and, oh, writings in Punjabi, Urdu, Gujarati, and Bangla. So without further ado, I will hand over to uh, Virinde. Um, so welcome, everyone, and thank you all again for coming. And yeah, sorry, in the format for the session today is quite, again, a quite informal session. So we will have short presentations by Insha, uh, our, our speakers, Insha Malik and Allah Alazem. And we, of course, we also more than uh, have been delighted to invite uh, members of the audience to, to join in with uh, your questions and your comments. Thank you all again. Thanks a lot, Emma. Uh, thanks for inviting me to chair this session um, to bring together these two um, very important global struggles, which uh, are not often um, on parity in relationship to how they are talked about in the West, but increasingly we see uh, the overlaps in uh, the treatment of the Palestinian and Kashmiri people by their respective states. Um, and so today, the focus of the conversation is on popular resistance. And uh, the format, as Emma said, is that we'll have uh, interventions by Insha and Allah, and I will respond to them. And then uh, we'll open it up for, for questions. Um, so we'll, we'll start with uh, Insha. Um, so Insha Malik. Uh, has a PhD from the Center for Comparative Politics and Political Theory uh, at the School of International Studies from Jawaharlal Nehru University uh, in Delhi in India. She's a former Fox Fellow at Yale University and is the author of Muslim Women, Agency and Resistance Politics, 
The Case of Kashmir, which was published by Palgrave in 2019. Her research interests include political theory, history of Islam, uh, political movements, internet activism, and gender studies in Central and South Asia, uh, particularly India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and of course today we'll be hearing about her work uh, on Kashmir. So um, without further ado, inshallah, I'll hand over to you. Thank you so much uh, for that introduction and also for this opportunity to be able to speak to everybody today. Um, I have about 15 minutes and I have to really <laughs> go deep into this subject because not much is really known about um, Kashmir. And if, if it's known, it's kind of in a very uh, limited circles. Um, and since the discussion is more about finding um, similarities of struggle of political protest or cultures of political protest be between Palestine and Kashmir, um, I think it's important to trace it back to, to the origins uh, in terms of how it was created because of um, the British imperialism of the Indian subcontinent. So I think uh, it's important to sort of mention, and I'm going to just share a few slides here, and not a lot, but a few of them. Hopefully uh, we can see them from here. So this is perhaps the most uh, remarkable moment that we probably, those who have studied the regional history know. It's the Treaty of Amritsar or called the Treaty of Lahore. It was um, after several, or perhaps the, the first uh, Anglo-Sikh war between the British East India Company and the Sikh empire of, uh, of the region, which was, until this time, I think from 1757 onwards to up until this moment was ruling Kashmir um, and had different governors uh, installed on the region. Um, and then perhaps one of its last uh, governors uh, was uh, Sheikh Imamuddin, who probably um, was the kind of last transaction between overseeing this treaty, kind of uh, transferring power from the Sikh empire to the British East India Company. So what happened was that uh, as per this treaty, one of the governor who had one of the one of the rulers who had also served as a governor in the Sikh empire, kind of acquired Kashmir by signing a treaty with East uh, India Company. Um, and the logic of that was perhaps you can see and 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 this is actually the only modern map of Kashmir in terms of how the region is organized into a comprehensive map. And it's basically, you can trace it back to the British Empire because up until then, this region was ruled in different small dynasties for different parts of areas. But for British, it was pretty convenient to club it all together. And the reason for this is uh, pretty much rooted with the global histories because it's uh, 1846, um, and it's uh, a kind of like um, fear of Russian empire, which is in the backdrop of Kashmir. Um, and then British India needs a kind of buffer zone apart from Afghanistan, which can kind of stop the incursions and, and, the, and, and other kind of influences to enter into the territories that they are interested in. So in 1846, Kashmir was conceived as a kind of buffer state between the two. Um, 
So what's important for me here when we talk about political culture in Kashmir is to understand how local populations experienced changes of empires and how they um, experienced or realized, uh, you know, you know, power in a very tangible manner in terms of rights, in terms of betterment of civil and public life. So, um, Sheikh Imabdin, who I formerly kind of mentioned, was one of the last governors who was sent by the Sikh Empire to Kashmir right before the Treaty of Amritsar to kind of consolidate the power over there. But uh, I think immediately after he uh, came into power, he noticed that the British were going to gift it to the Dogra king, a Dogra governor who had served in the Sikh Empire for his loyalties, kind of for collaborating with, with them. Um, and he kind of was proactively organizing a protest in Kashmir um, to sort of uh, reject the treaty. And so they said this treaty was unfair because it didn't take into consideration what Kashmiris want, because if uh, British imperialism is about modernization, it's a, it should consider um, you know, certain ideas of what people want. So it's, it's, it's a kind of like first moment when people in Kashmir started to conceptualize um, a more modern way of how their political life should be. So here is a picture from one of the British writers and you see this is probably Ranjit Singh. And then you see Sheikh Imamuddin kind of following the fray. And that's the source of the picture. Um, so I think there were lots of popular protests against the Dogras from who were, I mean, obviously it's a Hindu empire and they kind of take over a Muslim majority region. And under the leadership of uh, Imam Adin, they kind of resist. And this resistance doesn't go really well because uh, Dogras have assistance from the British uh, East India Company in terms of um, their, uh, you know, um, an, an army and military and other kind of infrastructure. So this is somehow how Kashmir comes into direct, not direct, but indirect control of the British East India Company. So the arrangement is such that the British do not directly rule now because do, the Dogras have been installed. And as per the treaty, they are supposed to take care of Kashmir for them and ensure that no counter British activity kind of takes place here. So this is, this is a kind of uh, way they install him. And so for about 100 years, we see in Kashmir some of the most remarkable um, political movements, which are more influenced by communist progressivism. So Kashmir has the first shawl weavers movement. It started in 1847 when British, uh, when, when Dogra rule kind of one year later imposed heavy taxation on shawl weavers to the point that it, it was like, obvious, like it, it was a kind of, slavery in that sense. It was called Begar system, which means you have to kind of forcibly weave the shawls for the British uh, export. Um, and so the British uh, themselves controlled uh, the policy of like how the shawls should be exported and how much they can make money and all of that stuff. And, uh, and, and, and this resistance, I mean, some of the anecdotes from history you hear is that Kashmiri shawl weavers, they came out, they protested and they cut their fingers um, to kind of resist this heavy taxation. And even many of them fled to neighboring Punjab 
uh, if they could. <laughs> but there was also the Rahdari policy, which was like the roads were closed for people to run away. So it's a kind of very extreme uh, uh, subjection of Kashmiri people at that point. And also like uh, we hear a lot of British uh, colonialists kind of write about um, uh, a famine kind of that happens at the, at, at the same time. So there's a lot of misgovernment, a lot of uh, difficult experiences in terms of like economy falling and, and trade not doing well, very well. But uh, why I mention all of this is about how Kashmiri masses who were kind of uh, majority Muslim, but also illiterate at that point, kind of experienced politics by modern politics by kind of becoming organized in groups and uh, whether it's through the Weaver movement or through introduction of more modern concepts like right to self-determination that come through from newly educated elite Muslims that go to India or other countries and study in modern universities that are promoted by the British and then come back and kind of try to teach people about how to ask for new or modern ideas. So in 19, by 1931, um, the literacy rates in general were rising because there were both uh, what we call anjumans locally, but are madrasas actually, and there are also missionary schools. And both of them kind of promote um, education uh, more, uh, yeah, uh, in a more system systematic uh, way. But what happens immediately after that is that there's a kind of stringent um, class politics. So there are uh, Kashmiris who benefit from the state and they argue for inclusion within the state or inclusion within government uh, policies. But there are also larger um, mass mobilizations that are against the Dogra rule. And Dogra rule is seen as kind of imposed and illegal. And of course, the anti-colonial movement in India and Pakistan kind of also have this impact on Kashmiris where they're like, we want a modern government with democracy and freedom and all of that. So in 31, it's uh, much before 1945, the moment when it becomes uh, very uh, uh, cataclysmic in that sense. So in 1931, there's a young guy, I'm sorry for all the text, you don't have to read it. Mm. There's a young guy called Abdul Qadir who kind of comes around and some people say that he was a butler or some, you know, with the British uh, or army official. And he was coming to the mosque and teaching people about what was going on in the background. And somehow he became a kind of figure who started to articulate more clearly that we must fight against uh, the Dogra rule because it's A, they're not Muslims, B, they're not democratic, they're not progressive. So all of these factors, I mean, it's, it's how they kind of conceptualize it. Um, and then it leads to his public trial. And this public trial kind of becomes a spectacle because thousands and thousands of people from villages come to watch what they'll do to him because he's like a hero. And um, there are mass shootings in July, 1931. And this is also remembered as the first martyrs uh, uh, event of the first, anyway, they're called the Shaheed, like the first martyrs for Kashmir's independence uh, back in 1931. And the graveyard is kind of centrally located in Kashmir. Um, so it's interesting that this, uh, particular person kind of 
becomes a hero because the people produce a kind of legitimacy that they affirm to him. And that's the kind of nature of politics in Kashmir. It's a very uh, mass, mass political <laughs> place where people can and cash on public sentiment and get to political power, but the political power always has rested with the masses. And then in by 1945, we, um, I know I probably have five more minutes, but yeah. So by 1945, when the British has to sort of leave the, um, yeah, when, when the British are about to kind of leave because, um, uh, because of the end of uh, colonization of India and Pakistan, and it leads to division of India and Pakistan. So you have this buffer territory, which is kind of led to itself. And the king is told that you can decide whichever um, state you want to join or whether you want to be independent. Um, and at that time, you have um, someone called Sheikh Abdullah, who is, again, a very mass chosen popular leader who argues for kind of independence. And then there's, there's other complications that come in, whether you know the newly formed state of India or Pakistan would accommodate a state like Kashmir. Um, and then it seems that the, the idea of partition, which was based on religion, it kind of complicated situation a bit more because people in the state, they felt, um, they, they they were divided about their loyalties. So Kashmiris up until that point had lived uh, in a very multicultural, multi-religious, multi, um, you know, you know, kind of very diverse existence. But at that moment, the, the kind of loyalties were divided, but still largely most Kashmiris would have preferred to live um, independently. Uh, at, at least that's what it appears like. But, uh, Soon after that, you see that uh, the, in Jammu, which is the other province of Kashmir, people wanted to be part of Pakistan, but they were not treated. Uh, I mean, it's obviously well known that how a genocide was perpetrated against Muslims of Jammu, which Kashmiri Muslims were kind of oblivious to this, um, that this happened. And this galvanized the kind of attack from the neighboring Pashtuns who armed themselves and attacked Kashmir um, in order to liberate it from the Dogras. Um, I'll stop here, but I mean, I have to, I have a long way to come up to the modern moment because it's not easy to situate this discussion, but I think um, probably during the course of this conversation, we can do that. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot, Incha. Uh, I'd like now to uh, introduce Ala Azad. Sorry, did I pronounce your name? I didn't pronounce your name correctly. Ala Alaza, um, who um, now I'm gonna have to find my notes. Yeah, sorry. Uh, who um, chairs the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Bizet University? He has a PhD in anthropology from Rice University. And he teaches courses in anthropology, research methodology, and critical theory. He also serves as a board member of uh, Muatin Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. So over to you, Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for everyone uh, and for uh, thanks for the Canyon Institute for the invitation. Um, 
I don't have like a fully prepared talk here, but I want to kind of just to give a general understanding of the um, um, like thinking about the the notion of popular resistance in the case of Palestine. And to to do so, I would like to to start with like you know the kind of historical framing of of, of the of Palestine and the case of uh, the colonial case in Palestine, uh, as probably all scholars around here kind of agree on that that the case of Palestine kind of another example of settler colonial uh, 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 settler colonial case. And as such, settler colonialism is a, a major distinction between uh, classical uh, imperial colonial practices versus settler colonialism is the is the fact that uh, uh, in the case of settler colonialism, it's it's all about not necessarily pacification, but rather elimination of the of the native population. And by by elimination is not necessarily genocidal elimination. That some of it happened in Palestine through the Nakba uh, by kind of destroying all the social fabric and kind of transforming Palestinians, the majority of Palestinians, into refugees but you know but but also denying the, uh, the the indigenous population of Palestine or the uh, uh, Palestinians the right to be uh, uh, to have a national uh, inspirations and as such the, this kind of framing would help us understand the form of resistance that emerged in in, in different uh, uh, historical moments uh, and to 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 clarify my point here, I'd like to kind of distinguish between two moments in, in form of resistance and kind of uh, speaking on behalf of the Palestinians. The one is the, the PLO exile form of resistance that mainly uh, was emerged part of uh, anti-colonial uh, anti -colonial national liberation movement that was mostly uh, uh, dependence on uh, armed struggle. And the other one that basically emerged in the uh, uh, occupied territories or the Palestin uh, uh, Palestinians who were under occupation in, in, in the West Bank, Gaza and, and Jerusalem, or Palestinians inside Palestine, including also Palestinians who were stayed in Palestine in 1948 areas. So there's kind of two forms. The one that basically was predominantly uh, uh, focusing on, on uh, armed struggle that was also very symbolic one that emerged in the moment of uh, anti-colonial national liberation. In the meanwhile, the, the, the uh, form of resistance that emerged inside uh, Palestine, at least like you know, from, from the 70s on, 1970s on was based on form of mass participation and kind of organizing the population to to fight or to um, challenge the modality of control that that emerged under uh, Israeli military rule, and those two forms basically uh, uh, kind of creating so far. I mean, in the contemporary, I'm speaking about the contemporary. In the contemporary, those two forms of of, of resistance that mass participation one uh, uh, versus the our beside and the uh, armed struggle one, creating a legacy among Palestinians who are thinking about or uh, uh, practicing forms of resistance in, in the current situation. Now, there is a particular moment in the Palestinian, uh, in, in the case of Palestine, which is basically the what's described as the peace process moment or the Oslo uh, uh, 
post Oslo moment. Uh, in 1993, uh, the PLO, which was the the major uh, represent or the representative of the Palestinian people, uh, signed up uh, a, a treaty with or a, a treaty with with the state of Israel that basically hopefully that will lead to some form of independent state. Uh, critical, critical, think, critical scholars would actually treat that as another form of control that basically by creating uh, uh, um, uh, or, or outsourcing the direct military colonial control to a, a local uh, or a native pillar like the Palestinian Authority. The, what that, create, cre that created, uh, uh, let's say, a fragmentation of the, uh, um, uh, that's created two forms of kind of new, new changes. One with political, basically by creating uh, a controlling body over the population. And at the same time, it's emerged in the moment of, of uh, the, um, spreading of new or the neoliberal uh, political economy that that basically fragmented the population into uh, 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 transformed a lot of the or I put it this way uh, uh, kind of new uh, political economy uh, new form of colonial geography that basically fragmented the Palestinian population into uh, different categories and different uh, uh, in different areas. At the same time, uh, 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 creating new kind of discursive formation related to uh, that's emerged from the uh, neoliberal discourse, and, and and this in these kind of structures of power that, that in, in in Palestine. Uh, the more the form the, the the notion of popular resistance took a new a new shape on one hand it's it has this long legacy of of, of armed struggle that people kind of want to um, to capitalize on it symbolically at the same time there is this kind of uh, uh, dissatisfaction with the lack of popular participation our mass participation in 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 form of uh, uh, confrontation or kind of organizing the population toward a form of um, uh, 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 dismantling the colonial control uh, and I mean I'm still speaking in abstract I and mean, I can articulate on that uh, in more detail but uh, uh, this kind of uh, lack of mass participation, uh, uh, or the frustration from from the lack of mass participation, uh, 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 kind of combined with a new form of uh, discourse that emerged post the Second Intifada uh, in, in in two thousand in two thousand, uh, uh, which is basically kind of seeing Palestinian resistance through uh, uh, a binary of violence and nonviolence, and therefore creating some kind of a form of industry over. A, a, a industry of nonviolence, and that industry, in a way, kind of delegitimized all form of of, uh, of resistance, uh, 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 and and uh, uh, giving like the basically uh, creating this kind of uh, uh, shift between what's considered uh, uh, popular and what's considered uh, armed uh, struggle, uh, and. 
I would say that today's kind of characterization of what's described as popular resistance uh, tend to think itself outside of the party structures, outside of the political party structures. And it's it's uh, it create it's focused on kind of like trying to create a mass participation or popular uh, form of organizing uh, in the confrontation. And in, in, in this in this regard, the the uh, the notion of popular resistance kind of uh, uh, became a label uh, to uh, kind of delegitimize in a way other form of resistance rather the one that's been described as uh, nonviolence. So the thing about Palestinian uh, uh, popular resistance today, I would say that the because of the uh, the shift. Uh, from uh, uh, national liberation struggle into a form of uh, uh, state-like uh, form that's basically kind of playing some form of um, uh, 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 or uh, kind of like the Palestinian Authority playing that role of controlling the population. I mean, the 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 major element in in, in popular resistance today, or in the forms that been uh, uh, um, or kind of the among people that I interviewed and I talked to, is this kind of the 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 the, the, the desire to shift from. Uh, being an object of politics to becoming a political subject, by which I mean transforming politics uh, uh, into a daily practices that would actually uh, lead to uh, uh, some form of um, daily uh, confrontation with the colonial rule, as well as kind of support and supported for sure uh, uh, with a, a, an infrastructure uh, uh, of um, withdrawal from the direct uh, from the colonial uh, modality of control uh, i will stop here and and maybe uh, during the discussion we'll have uh, 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 more input into that thanks uh, my video is just taking time oh there it is there I am. oh i just appeared so uh, thanks to, to both of you, and thanks for the appearance of your son, maybe, um, into, the, into the talk. Um, thanks to both of you for, for these uh, illuminating um, short interventions uh, outlining some of the, <clears throat> like some of the issues that arise when we talk about uh, popular protest or when we talk about popular resistance. Um, I think both of you, I mean, touched on the importance of looking at uh, colonial resistance and looking at the modes and ways in which uh, certain organizations uh, or certain forms of um, resistance in the colonial period spill over into the post-colonial period. Um, and in this sense, of course, again, both uh, both Palestine and Kashmir are partitioned as a part of the uh, decolonization process. So um, th this is something that is 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 a, is a common thing. And there is armed there is armed resistance at the point of that. You know, there's quite a, a lot of violence and armed resistance at the point of of these partitions at the point of the creations of uh, the states of India and Israel. So I, th I think that's quite an important theme that you both touched on. Uh, 
this idea of colonial resistance. I was really quite struck uh, with Insha when you were talking about how, um, and, and this is work that, you know, I, I think is quite important, that how a lot of the articulation of uh, the independence movement in Kashmir in the valley uh, is articulated through class and articulated against the uh, the kind of the regime of the uh, of the Maharaja, which is seen as uh, unjust and inequitable, um, and and how uh, this becomes communalized, like how the bandits, uh, you know, are, are able to draw more resources from the kind of rural Muslim masses. Um, and I suppose, and I'm gonna, I, I will kind of take the privilege of chairing and chatting. I mean, I'm kind of interested in how uh, movements like the Erar and uh, their role in mobilizing some of this communal kind of tension, like with this, you know, Zamindar, and, you know, they, 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 they take Kashmir on as a big issue, the Erar. And I was wondering if that you've come across that in your research. So, and, and that is really just focusing on the colonial period. Um, and maybe we'll come back to the post-colonial period in Kashmir through other people's questions. And then, uh, Allah, I was really struck with your really, actually, I thought, and, and again, this I think this does apply to Kashmir, but Insha might will know better. But uh, I was really struck about the way in which you categorized various forms of resistance and the way in which you were really disaggregating popular from party political and from armed resistance. And, and, and I do think that this bifurcation or this trifurcation that you're talking about, I think it's less in Kashmir, to be honest, because I, I think that there isn't the same kind of space in Kashmir for all of these different things because the, the repression takes on doesn't allow for certain kind of liberal forms of NGOs and things like that, let's say. But the but I think this 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 distinction between popular party and armed, I felt from your talk, and I suppose that's what I want to ask you, you kind of think this is a problem that basically there's got that, that there is a, this this distinction, these distinctions are not good for the struggle. And, and maybe that's just my understanding or my reading of what you said, but I would would want you to just like, because I think that's a really important point about the contemporary struggles anywhere in the world, really, that there's such a delegitimization of armed struggle. Armed struggle is just not, it's just seen as wrong. You know, there's like, it's just, it's taken as a kind of ethical point of, of incorrectness. Yet, um, Yet it's so integral to like most struggles. Um, struggle is always a part of any successful struggle, or at least having to you know meet, uh, do, you know, engage at that level. So, so I'm just, I suppose, so those those are my two questions. Oh, and, and after that, we we can open up to the audience. So I don't know who wants to go first. Insha, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for that uh, question. Um, the reason I chose to really talk about that moment is because for many people who speak about Kashmir today, um, it's like uh, it's been a history of um, progressive forgetting, forgetfulness. Like right? so, when we talk about 2019 as a moment, uh, we think, oh, it's the only one exceptional moment. But when you track track down the history and you see that there is a kind of pattern, right? So like when we talk about the Sikh empire of Kashmir, for instance, um, in the popular narratives, you will not hear something like, oh, they were bad or horrific, or you, you will probably hear that there was economic progress, there was less taxation, because at that point even, 
British were bringing the East India, you know, East India, British East India Company's policies in terms of strong uh, liberalization, taxation, right? So it's a kind of moment that's remarkably different from Kashmir before. So 1846 brings in a kind of modern politics into Kashmir, which uh, required for people to really rethink how they existed and, and in what way they should respond. So the communal element kind of starts to appear when criticism of Dogras is seen as criticism of religion for that matter, right? Uh, and then it's the same thing. Criticism of Modi will be seen as criticism of Hindu religion, for instance. So in, in case of Indian subcontinent, the problem is really that um, the that post-coloniality kind of led to, especially because of the partition, led to very strong identitarian politics. And Kashmir kind of, because of a lot of influence from the progressive East Bloc in some way, always tried to resist that simplistic um, narrative, like the simplistic narrative of partition, for instance, in 49, where they were like, okay, Pakistan, good, India is great, but we would rather be kind of independent. So in that sense, like, I think uh, Kashmiris as a community were always used to living in a multicultural setting, and they had developed ways to be with each other in a, in a, in a more accepting and, and okay, you know, kind of not normal uh, ways. I mean, in, even I remember from 18, 1989, which is like fall of Soviet Union and everything else becomes so um, political. I mean, those are the years of growing up for me in Kashmir. Um, there's a lot of respect between communities. There's a lot of acceptance uh, between communities. But I think that the post-colonial um, uh, neoliberal government, as well as the British government at that point, they tried to play on to the communal sensibilities to divide people. And, and then, of course, you have this uh, division of Kashmir at, uh, in 1945, which happens because everybody is kind of worked up about what happens to them. You know, it's Muslim identity, Hindu identity. And then it's a kind of like de facto agreement that, okay, let's divide up the territory. We don't care about people. We don't care that they are used to living in a very cosmopolitan um, interactive manner. So th this sort of, um, it's a kind of working that kind of happens throughout Kashmir's politics up until today. And today it's kind of in the more severe form. Um, and many times when friends in India tell me, oh, we now have a kind of right-wing Hindu government, I'm like, well, we had it in 1846. We already know what Hindu Raj is like, you know, after British Raj. So, um, so in that sense, yes, I think Kashmiris um, kind of experienced early on what the futility of post-colonial uh, political experience would have because they had been through the Dogra regime, they had already actualized a post-colonial re reality by not being directly ruled by British, but a kind of Hindu right-wing kind of government. I hope that <laughs> answered. And yes, it, it becomes uh, also very, very classist because there are groups um, who have historically played a significant role in public administration. So you see a lot of pundits, for example, were always part of the governments. Doesn't matter, Afghan, Sikh, any kind of government, they were always part of that bureaucratic structure. 
So for them to secure their space within any kind of bureaucratic formation was much more important than larger questions of human rights or people's rights. I mean, it's not to deny that they haven't suffered or something. Every community in Kashmir has suffered in one way or the other. But at the same time, like um, the, the uh, real politics gets covered into kind of superficial religious identitarian narrative. Um, but uh, at the deep down, it was it's always about acquiring more power as against the Muslims or as against the Sikhs or something or the other. Um, I hope that answered that question. Yeah, thanks very much. Allah? Um, well, thank you for the question. Um, let's let's put it this way. I mean, let's distinguish. I mean, the the, the between uh, 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 what Palestinians kind of uh, Palestinian discourse and practice uh, uh, um, did in the past uh, when, when on the on the issue of uh, armed struggle versus popular resistance, uh, and uh, on the current. Uh, liberal, uh, mostly Western uh, discourse on kind of distinguishing between or kind of looking at the, at Palestine through the prism of violence and nonviolence. Uh, so there is two different uh, uh, kind of uh, approach to think about popular resistance. I mean, in the in in, in the his, like or the his, um, historical practice of, of the PLO faction, particularly in the 80s, uh, in the air, like late 70s and the early, in, in the early 80s, uh, uh, the PLO uh, was mostly located in, in, in exile uh, outside of Palestine. Their relationship to uh, uh, the population inside uh, uh, the occupied territories, uh, uh, kind of, they made that, the PLO faction made like, a distinction between uh, a party organization and what they described as uh, uh, mass organizations or sometimes described as the democratic organizations. And the democratic organizations or mass uh, 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 organization, al-munadamat al-demokratiya or al-munadamat al-jamahiriya, used to be, uh, used to describe uh, the form of um, a network of, uh, of uh, uh, unions, uh, uh, student, uh, student formations, uh, uh, more like, you know, an organizational structures uh, that emerged to kind of that worked to worked uh, on, on on the basis of like raising consciousness, uh, creating steadfastness for the population. Sometimes creating alternative forms of economy outside of the of the uh, military control. So in a way, I'll I'll kind of like uh, 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 paraphrase Bal uh, Ahmad by by uh, describing that moment. It was a moment of. Uh, uh, um, out administration of the population or out administer the, 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 the colonial control rather than out fighting uh, the colonial uh, power. So in a way, it's basically a, a form of self-governance that's emerged in, 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 in the occupied territories. 
uh, that basically kind of escaped from the direct colonial control. And that was actually led to the first intifada, which was uh, uh, marked by the direct confrontation that was kind of dependent on, on the those this those forms of, of uh, organizational structure that existed uh, on the ground. So that was the uh, uh, Palestinians' approach or to distinguish the forms of um, forms of resistance, let's say the one that basically through the party structure that mainly emphasizes or work on uh, on uh, on on uh, uh, armed struggle uh, versus the mass organization or the democratic organizations on the ground. And now the current uh, way or the current discourse on Palestine basically starts with the notion of, okay, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? And that's kind of the, it's basically by, by doing so, it's is a way to delegitimize any form of resistance by kind of depicting a resistance that's legitimate and one that's not legitimate. And and this is this is as as I mentioned maybe uh, uh, in the in the early comments uh, commentary it's uh, um, it's in a way I mean it's an industry there is an in a whole industry uh, uh, around the notion of uh, uh, nonviolent resistance so uh, and and basically uh, uh, an industry that usually seeing the form of resistance through the lenses the lens of power uh, through the lens of the powerful rather than the lens of the of the of the subordinate or the uh, uh, people uh, subject to uh, or subject to power so that's the, the two distinction between the between the two now why uh, uh, so all for the current the current discourse on uh, that's that's that kind of prism on violence and nonviolence tend to push activists or or people in the ground to kind of uh, uh, put themselves away from the uh, party structure because they don't want to be depicted as through the lens of violence and nonviolence, and therefore to be depicted as uh, as terrorists and then you know, the whole legal uh, uh, international discourse on terrorism and uh, uh, legitimate form of resistance so in a way this is kind of the two the two i hope i answer your your uh, your comment or your your uh, your point yeah, I mean, I, I was less of a comment. I mean, it was more, I, I just was, inter I mean, you you told me it was more about just this, this is such a big, this is such a big problem for any resistance movements. Uh, the the discourse around violence, nonviolence is a real, is a real issue. And I, and I think that, um, and I suppose I just wanted to, yeah, get your understanding of that from the, the Palestinian case that, but um, so, so yeah, that, that it wasn't really a, it was more just to open the conversation up further. Um, I think there is one question in the box. I don't know. Oh, have I have I missed it? Is it in the chat box potentially? Oh, this. Yeah, did you see this uh, question? Did you guys do you guys see this? Uh, so, oh, well, I'll 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 just read it if you if you haven't seen it. So uh, uh, David Chapel is saying, isn't it the case in both Jammu and Kashmir and Palestine? that resistance itself is practically inevitable, even if the forms and intensity change, simply because the oppressor's aims are seen by the mass of the populations to be actually or ultimately genocidal, and see the oppressors currently have no interest in ideological alternatives. 
so I suppose the the, the question here is, uh, yeah, while we might be theorizing about resistance on the ground in Kashmir and Palestine, people just have to resist because it's like they don't have a choice. So I mean, again, I mean, I don't know, Incha, if you want to comment on this or yeah, I I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, I just remembered because of this question, I remembered the moment in 2019 when uh, the Indian government was about to pass uh, the uh, the Kashmir reorganization bill in uh, which led to the you know removal of article 370 from Indian constitution um a few days before that I talked to my father and he um, informed me quite randomly and he said he had purchased a very big um you know uh, a very big um like a refrigerator for storage and I was quite surprised because it's really huge and it has a lot of capacity like it can feel like about 100 to 100 kgs of meat and he loves lamb a lot by the way <laughs> so he he just informed me and I was like why would he even do something like that and it has no purpose and I kind of had this conversation with my mom and I was saying what's that about um, and two days later, I realized that the government of India had passed this law and it meant that Kashmir had gone into a complete, um, uh, you know, complete silence for months and months. I had no contact with my parents. Um, so I think that, uh, yes, it's very much true that people living under such circumstances kind of for them, resistance is life. That's the only way they can survive when governments strip down their basic rights. Um, and by basic rights, I mean right to life and right to think and speak and, um, and, and most importantly, political participation, whether or not one agrees with the way the governments are run or the laws are being formulated. If there are no possibilities for you to comment or participate, um, parochial forms of political culture take root. And that's why I kind of was talking about the history of how um, political culture as resistance existed in Kashmir. Um, like, um, you know, many grandmothers in Kashmir will still, uh, you know, tell their grandchildren not to have beef, right? You will be like, why, you, you know, for Muslims, there's no such restriction. Why would someone speak like that? And it's basically rooted in Dogra rule because we were ruled by a Hindu kingdom that prohibited Muslims from eating beef. And it meant they could get killed for doing such a thing. And therefore for Kashmiri grandmothers to teach their children or grandchildren not to consume beef was a matter of survival. So I think a lot of such uh, um, illegal, illegality sort of exists and people find or maneuver kind of ways in which they can still exist with dignity. And I think both Palestinian people and Kashmiri people have shown um, the world how to do that with dignity, uh, even though you are subjected to most uh, cruel kind of um, politics and settler colonization or any kind of annexation of territory without consultation of ordinary people, I think, um, what happened in Kashmir in 2019 is even illegal from the perspective of legal, you know, format because Kashmir did have its own legislative assembly. So any kind of law to be passed for removal of statehood should come from the state legislation. This is 
Indian constitution. This is not something <laughs> that Kashmiri people are conjuring up. So there's, there is um, such a subjection, but unfortunately what happens is, and I think a little bit addressing to what Allah is also pointing out, is that the need is not only to um, uh, tell the story of what is happening in Kashmir or Palestine now, but how progressively rights have been taken away from people and how people have been themselves invisibilized um, to the point that anyone talking about Kashmir or Palestine doesn't immediately think about people of those territories, but more about who should have right to govern them or how they should be governed by whoever. So I think it's, 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 it's very important to understand political cultures of these places in a way that um, we can also show that how uh, injustices have kind of been progressively perpetrated and have led to cultures that are parochial, that are um, resistance cultures because they are deeply tied to one's survival. So yeah, I think I totally agree with David here. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Incha. That was, uh, I, I, I really appreciated those small stories which show the ways in which oppressive regimes just go down to the mic and go down to the, the smallest level. Uh, and I think that's really, that's really, really powerful. Um, Allah. Well, and then, and then same question, like, are you, are you you expect me to answer the same question or uh, uh if you want to well, like well, <laughs> if you want to uh, the, 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 uh, yes but for sure in, in any colonial context i mean in any colonial oppressive context here resistance in an in inevitable uh, uh meanwhile like we understand that the the um the different modality of control would actually necessitate or kind of imprint uh, itself in the forms of resistance uh, that that people can practicing so uh, and in 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 the case of, of palestine I'm, I'm not like i would not claim an expertise and knowledge on, on kashmir but i would say in, in the case of palestine where i understand uh, we understand the settler colonial project as a structural project rather than uh, uh, so structural in the sense that that basically has some kind of logic of of controlling a territory uh, uh, like more more territory and less population basically and that's the genocidal aspect of the of the settler colonial project and, and again it's not necessarily genocidal in the physical sense not necessarily getting killing people directly but rather stripping people from their rights to to have a national a national identity or national inspiration or transforming that national inspiration into a political uh, manifestation a state like political manifestation prevent them from exercising their uh, their cultural uh, uh, slash political rights so in a way uh, uh, palestinians in in a way transformed in this in this context into kind of um, I mean, I would I would use this term like you know very uh, loosely, bare rights, people without any political rights. So uh, in this sense, it's genocidal by by kind of destroying the it's destroying local uh, uh, cultural uh, 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 collectivity, uh, denying its political rights at the same time destroying the social fabric so it's kind of uh, 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 it's genocidal in this sense and also it happened actually with the Palestinians that transformed 
uh, 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 90% or 80% of the population into refugees in 1948 with the creation of the state of Israel. Israel. So in this sense, it's genocidal. Its, it's logic is based on, on elimination and uh, getting rid of the, uh, of the, of the uh, uh, colonized population. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I'm, oh, Tofik has appeared. I, did you want to ask a question? Yes, you can if you want to unmute yourself. <laughs> uh, so I need to unmute myself. Yes, thank you. I'd, I'd like to thank, uh, you know, the speakers as well as yourself for, uh, you know, obviously this issue is a quite a complicated one because, you know, uh, in Shah started in in the mid 1800s and you know it's ridiculous for us to assume that we could give any form of a comprehensive uh, you know picture of uh, both the structures and the histories of, of of what happened in Kashmir or Palestine and then how that shaped popular resistance we can only uh, you know hint to that um but I think actually I'd like to build off of what Allah said uh, which is coming out of david's question which relates to the quote-unquote genocidal nature of of uh of of the oppressive regime here but i'm also i would also like to link it to your distinction verinda of uh what you claim to be the colonial and then the post-colonial dimensions of the struggle or, or, or of, of 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 history itself uh it, it struck me at the time because from a palestinian perspective uh, Palestinians don't, they see continuity of, of colonialisms, even though it's uh, it evolved from a British to a clearly Zionist one that was trying to Judaize and, and effectively use genocidal practices, uh, some of which, uh, of course, some, you know, when, when no one was looking, or, well, actually, I mean, the world was looking at, at the time, actually, but in 1948, they they did this mass genocide, and then the policies that come thereafter still can be described as genocidal, even if they're not actually, you know, uh, going after mass killing right now. But I mean, if you look at what's happening in Gaza, I mean, it's a, it, it's certainly a genocidal situation. And moreover, if you look at what the Israeli government is speaking and the way they speak in terms of Judaizing Palestine, they're very clear about actually, they feel that the Nekba was incomplete. The problem with Israel today is that that incompletion, and they they actually see a historical opportunity arising out of uh, the uh, for, for potentially more genocidal activity to take place. So um, I don't know. I, I think that's sort of important thing to 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 set up at first. But then, what it means though, if the structure is one that is genocidal. And firstly, actually, I'd, I'd like to understand a bit more on the Kashmir side about the genocidal nature as well as the post-colonial nature or not, because I, I didn't realize that folks in Kashmir would consider post-1947 as post-colonial period. Like I would, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say they're perfect parallels. It's a certain, I mean, the, the Zionist, uh, what's happening, the way that, you're, you're talking about folks from Poland and, and America and France coming here from all over the world, trying to settle and actually change demographics here. Uh, uh, the Indian Kashmir Jammu cases uh, has dimensions this, but it's probably not the, but, but, but it's not uh, similar. I mean, I, or I'd like to hear more from you about it. What From a Palestinian perspective though, I will say because of this genocidal dimension and this replacement dynamic and this eliminationist, mentality that's going on 
it, when we talk about popular resistance, Ala kind of took the argument into how it has been kind of cordoned off between violence and nonviolence. But actually, from if the logic is around genocide and elimination, then actually the logic of resistance to that can actually also take on the character of just actually remaining in place. So to remain in place and to, to, to resist is a form of resistance. And uh, here, I think I'd just like to add that basically Palestinian resistance takes on dimensions that are both direct military confrontation, but then you also have sort of these attempts to institutionalize, create wars of position to like with the NGO struggle and the civil struggle. And then you also have these popular resistances, which are going to checkpoints and throwing things like that. But also you might even describe, and there is the indigenous Palestinian concept of sumud, which is to remain steadfast. And that in and of itself is also considered a form of resistance. Uh, and, and by the way, I would also argue that the Palestinian Authority tries to uh, follow on this and, and claim that what they are doing through their governance of the occupied territories is on one level, you know, you know, leading the international struggle to try and get Palestinian rights. But on the other side, they're basically claiming that they are able to institute governance locally to allow Palestinians to continue to live locally, which in and of itself is enabling a kind of resistance. So I just want to widen the debate, I guess. Sorry, yeah. Alan. Did you want to? Did you? I was just going to say, um, Insha, did you want to? Did you want to uh, respond? Uh, yes, I, I wanted to say that uh, the reason I started in 1846 is because um, perhaps for me the biggest similarity between Palestinian issue and Kashmiri issue right now is that it was created by at a certain moment in time because of British imperialism. Um, and while many people kind of know that, but I think it's also important to um, understand the complexity of the region and how uh, how it appears and in what sense it kind of appeared in Kashmir. Um, and, and the moments of like talking about Imam al-Din, the moment of protest and the moment of protest with Abdul Qadir, it's a kind of, uh, or, or looking at the Shawl viewers uh, movement, it's a kind of, uh, you know, remark on the aspiration for freedom and independence that kind of pre-existed even uh, um, anti-colonial politics in India and Pakistan, because like 1840s, uh, 1847 Shawl Weavers movement, I think it's the oldest uh, modern uh, labor rights movement, not only uh, in Kashmir, but I think it's um, almost in the whole region. So I kind of, I wanted to kind of point out that Kashmiris have been politically or had a political culture, which kind of enabled them to articulate for more progressive politics. Um, but the issue that you take with post-colonialism, and, and rightly so, uh, in case of Kashmir, is, uh, of course, that Kashmiris did not really experience a moment where they had actual liberation or had really um, you know, possibility to explore new political system or creation of new political world for themselves, they did not. But there were some experimentations. And then experimentations were in terms of like when in 1945, 
um, uh, when uh, the British exited the region. And of course, the region of Kashmir was divided into two uh, areas, one under Kashmir, one under Pakistan, one under India. On the Indian side, which is considered to be the main side of Kashmir, because um, that's what India's claim is, that it's a region that Maharaja or the king of that region kind of signed a treaty with the Indians and said, okay, Kashmir is uh, part of India. So it's a formal kind of joining, which is quite disputed, again, because this happened in the background of the attacks, of, of the, the raiders kind of, kind of coming from the other side. And at the same time, the entire question was uh, um, about stopping the incursion. So Indian army arrived in Kashmir on 19, in 1945, 48 September, to assist the king in stopping the incursions. And as per the agreement, it was that the once the incursions from the Western border uh, where in the Afghans came from, um, they, they, would, they would kind of retreat, they would leave. So it was an assistance that was provided to Kashmir at that point in time. Uh, and of course, the Indian army never left Kashmir. So it led to the de facto occupation by the military itself. And the case was taken to UN and we have the resolutions from 1948, which asks both India and Pakistan to uh, remove themselves or their armies from both regions and hold a referendum. And obviously nobody does it. But what I'm interested in as a scholar is what do, how do Kashmiris kind of still negotiate with, with the system that was being produced without their, uh, without their will? So at that point, Sheikh Abdullah, who was becoming, who was, who had risen kind of a very popular Muslim leader of Kashmir, uh, he, he kind of says, okay, well, um, we will contest the elections and we will ask for complete freedom or we will, uh, you know, create our own legislative assembly. And it, it's exactly the history that he is crowned as the first prime minister of Kashmir. A second, actually, after Ramchandra Kak was the first one. So he becomes the prime minister and then he uh, creates, I mean, we have a legislative assembly and he, a constituent assembly, it's not a legislative assembly. He goes in there in 1953 and asks for self-determination. Um, and he passes some of the most progressive laws, like you have the new Kashmir manifesto, which overnight uh, ended feudalism in Kashmir. So it, it said basically land to tillers movement. So everybody who is tilling whatever land, the land belongs to him. So he auto, so I think this question was raised earlier as well because it kind of automatically took away a lot of class power from feudal landlords who hated him for doing that. And I mean, continue to hate him today. I think a lot of settlers who wanna go back to Kashmir are kind of progeny of these feudal landlords who feel like, hey, this is winning time. You know, we're going back to Kashmir to take our lands from these people who um, took them away from us. So it's, it's a kind of like contest to understand how the politics is moving in circles and their patterns are kind of emerge. And in 53, he openly argues that India must fulfill its promise to Kashmiris, which is right to self-determination, um, after which he is kind of removed from power and he spends the rest of 20 years in jail. And he's only removed, I mean, he most, I think it's almost 10 or 11 years. I'm sorry, I might be wrong about the number. But he's let out only after he signs the Indra Sheikh Accord. And this, uh, as per this accord, he says, okay, I'm fine with 
making it another state and I'll just be a chief minister. So constituent assembly of a country is moved to uh, legislative assembly and he becomes from prime minister to become the chief minister. So it's, it's like a series of, so you see a pattern like that in Palestine as well when you try to create negotiations and then, you know, yes, the Arafat kind of solution comes in and they say, okay, you can build here, settlements not here, here or here. So there are these kind of progressive ways in which actually Kashmiris end up losing more and more and more rights. So this is why these post-colonial so-called systems don't work as post-colonial systems. They work as colonial systems because they lead to, lead to ultimate or incremental um, uh, disempowerment and dehumanization of Kashmiris and Palestinians both, in my opinion. <laughs> so um, in that sense, I think when I acknowledge post-coloniality, I acknowledge it in the sense that uh, a lot of people who inherited British empire <laughs> in some way, they were like, okay, you don't have to do it. We know how to do it now, you know, just leave it, leave it to us. We will do the job. <laughs> so um, I'm sure there was like a better resolution possible for, uh, uh, for Jews who have just come out of, you know, who just came out of World War II and had such horrific experience of Holocaust. They could have probably taken Palestinians into consideration, created better solutions, but that was never the idea. The idea was we have learned how to do it by dehumanizing others and creating centralized power structures that uh, benefit basically more and more the classist and class politics that, that exists. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think for, for, for in the case of India, I think Kashmir really became, um, that buffer zone where you could do everything and nobody will say a thing. Because over the years, what India did was uh, successfully alienate Kashmiris from rest of the world. Um, like while it's different for West Bank and Gaza and Kashmir, you can't leave. So you're kind of imprisoned. You won't get passports if you are going to get out of India and speak about, it. I mean, the only way you can speak is to kind of like, leave everything behind and forget about it and then come out of that place and speak. So it's a kind of an open air prison uh, that's, that's, that's kind of like has kept, it's a kind of well uh, shielded, guarded kind of uh, um, secret. And then of course, um, India has been very, very successful in taking away or completely depoliticizing Kashmiris um, in terms of representation. So in the West, for example, in the, in the, in the West Asia, uh, it's Pakistan who speaks about Kashmir, for example, because constantly tries to frame it as a by, by you know, uh, a, a kind of uh, bilinear uh, issue between India and Pakistan, and India, on the other hand, for the Western world. So it has ensured that the voices of Kashmiri people are not represented. represented. Um, so... In the sense of representation, I think Kashmiris failed even much more <laughs> for creating a world-recognized representative body or polit politics. Um, and, and in that, Palestinians kind of were more, much more successful uh, comparatively. Uh, so um, to, to kind of wrap up with what we're saying here is, um, um, 
because it's also like I I want to um, be able to speak in a way that I can also respond to or speak speak with the voices of let's say post-colonial India like they're not just Brahmins there are lots of Dalits there are lots of Sikhs there are lots of people um, who are outside of that structure of power who are suffering like in multitude ways and they're not necessarily suffering from loss of nation or loss of land or but uh, really from stripping down of rights and progressive uh, alienation and progressive lack of education and lack of rights and so much more um so 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 yeah so <laughs> to conclude i think yes and no that uh, by recognizing post colonial experience of india i want to kind of criticize that it's not very different from from the period of colonization because same policies have sort of continued but at the same time like um it's it's it is the same thing it's basically the same thing being repeated and some of us have suffered much more from that repetition of those those kind of policies yeah i hope uh, i answered that great thanks Incha. that was really great um so uh i wanted to go over to Allah. i i know uh Tofik, you were asking about my use of colonial post-colonial but Incha said everything i would have said so i have nothing more to add to what she said and she said it much better than i would say it so uh Allah, can i pass over to you um just like i have like very small comments on on uh, like one on the notion of uh, colonial post-colonial i was just um was thinking about what what does it mean to have a post-settler colonial uh moment i mean that's a that's a that's a question uh to be posed and uh, maybe the only example like the only historical example that we can think of uh, is post-apartheid south africa as an example of post-settler colonial uh, 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 or settler colonialism. So uh, it's just, uh, uh, that's, that's, okay, Topic. Um, the, the, the um, I would say like the example of Algier might be another, another example, but again, I mean, I mean the, the, the differences uh, on having like a, a colonial metropole in the case of the French settlers in, uh, uh, in Algier versus uh, uh, not having like one uh, metropole in, in, in this sense, uh, uh, in, in the case of the uh, uh, Zionist uh, uh, settlers, uh, would actually kind of the um, kind of complicate the 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 story of, of post uh, uh, settler colonialism uh, uh, in, in Palestine. Uh, the other point that I want to uh, to kind of to respond or, or speak to Taufik's comment on the notion of sumud or steadfastness. Um, well, like the, the the issue of steadfastness is that basically it became. I mean, from how much is it used? I mean, just thinking it became kind of an empty signifier uh, because like everybody claims that what they're doing is steadfastness and sumud. So the PA, for example, uh, uh, using the same rhetorics to claim that it's practicing and pushing and solidifying Palestinians' ability to uh, to sumud or to stay in their in their place. Uh, at the same time, we know that the uh, 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 the kind of uh, 
politics and form of government and and uh, complicity with the with the colonial structure the political economy of the Palestinian authorities actually making the Palestinian population more vulnerable to uh, 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 and, and less capable of actually uh, stood fast or stay in their in their uh, in their land so they are making them kind of more vulnerable to any form of, uh, of eliminate or, or to futuristic possible forms of of, of elimination so uh, uh, so i would i would be very careful kind of like uh, uh, using the term sumud as a form of resistance because it's now everybody's claiming claiming doing so uh, this, this is my comment okay uh thanks very much i don't think there are any more questions and i think we are a bit over our time so i'd like to thank uh insha and allah for a really stimulating conversation i really enjoyed that this is uh something that i think quite a lot about uh and i do think that these we are both the oppressive matrix had become become much worse uh, and I think in that sense, our resistance is also fragmented in many ways. So I think it was really interesting to hear you guys thinking about these uh, or, talk, or talking about these from like for me, which are the two touchstones in the world, really, uh, of, of uh, both this oppressive matrix and, and, and the resistance to it. Um, so I don't know if uh, Tofik or Emma want to have any last words or... Emma, go ahead. Well, first of all, Brinder, thank you so much for chairing uh, this event and inshallah for really interesting and insightful um, and interesting conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I thought uh, both of you raised some really interesting points around popular resistance. 